You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margot Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands where we record this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Yagaba people of the Narang District. We pay respect to their elders. You can send feedback, comments, questions, topics, even audio postcards to this podcast. The address is transitzonepod at gmail.com transitzonepod at gmail.com. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone, Professor Axel Bruns. He's a senior media researcher in the Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology. And Axel will be with us very shortly. Well, this has been truly an intense week in coronavirus world. Apart from anything else, while our COVID-19 infections here in Australia and New Zealand have reached an encouraging low point, and our governments are partly easing restrictions, we've seen the biggest 24-hour global surge in coronavirus infections since this pandemic actually began. The USA and the United Kingdom, both led by demagogues, together account for about 30% of global COVID cases and more than a third of the coronavirus deaths. But parallel to that, we've also seen the explosion of protests in the United States and around the world following that very public death of George Floyd as a Minneapolis policeman knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes. That wave of disgust reignited widespread protest here in Australia too, around the long-standing and current Indigenous deaths in custody issue. Meanwhile, in the journalism realm, and many USA newsrooms have been rocked by a surge of dissent against media management around diversity, the use of social media, and the publications of certain opinions. Leading journals of record like the New York Times and the Washington Post, amongst others, have been centre stage in that upheaval, much of it prosecuted by frontline journalists, reporters, via Twitter, itself a bone of contention within media hierarchies. Yes, it certainly has been quite the week. Margot, I've been wondering what's been going through your mind as you've watched all this. A bit of a journey um, into my past. In 2000, I created Mainstream Media's first online blog, Web Diary which also became a forum for political comment and debate through emails and articles I received from readers. When Professor Catherine Lumby asked me to write for her book, Remote Control, on online media ethics, I adapted the Media Alliance Code to the online space. When blogging came to prominence, Web Diary looked dated until Fairfax added a comments facility, and I thought life would be easier. Nope. Comment numbers were massive, the tone was strident, trolls swooped, and commenters expected to be published. This wasn't an email to me, but a comment to the world, often anonymously. When I didn't publish, people demanded to know why, and when I published my comments policy, the work escalated even more with disputes and accusations of bias. I employed a web diarist to moderate comments who resigned a month later, exhausted and stressed. Some mainstream media tried auto-publishing, exposing them to legal risk. Some required registration to comment and moderation became a job. Some disabled comments altogether. Then it didn't matter anymore. Facebook, Twitter and others created a publishing platform for anyone to self-publish under any name. Because they weren't seen as publishers, they had no liability for what was published and mainstream journos now spend lots of time fact-checking their content while social media fact-checks them. It seemed like Nirvana, a new world of democratic communication, but only in democratic countries. Now the comments problem threatens 
the stability of democracies themselves. People are in information silos. In America, there are not even common facts anymore. Disinformation and conspiracy theories spread like wildfire. Nations use the platforms as weapons of war on democracies and political actors as micro-precise propaganda tools. In coronavirus world, platforms now try to hinder disinformation on the pandemic. Recently, Twitter marked a tweet by the US president as glorifying violence, and Zuckerberg's employees forced him to rethink his refusal to do so, as Trump threatened to make platforms legally accountable for their content. Meanwhile, citizens' videos of George Floyd's murder and hundreds of police brutality events in the aftermath transformed Americans' view of police. And the issue remains as it was for me two decades ago. What is fit to publish and who decides? So, Axel, where are you at? on the net benefit of unrestrained free speech on social media platforms? Well, I think the problem there is always the unrestrainedness of free speech, of course. That's, I mean, that's a, a discussion that, that well predates, of course, online media as well, the question of how much free speech is the right amount of free speech. Many countries around the world have been taking very different approaches to this as well. We've, we've seen the very strongly free speech-oriented, as much free speech as possible approach in the U.S., We've seen a, a much stronger focus on balancing the right of the individual to free speech and the right of the society to be protected from hate speech, from misinformation and disinformation in, in places in the EU in different ways. That remains one of those big, big, wicked problems, balancing those two competing agendas, I guess. In terms of the, the social media platforms, particularly themselves, I still see in some cases, some great benefits from the ability of individuals to express themselves freely without the filter of the media, without any political censorship filters. I'm also very much seeing the negative impacts of unfettered circulation of misinformation, disinformation, abuse, hate speech, and all of the, the very significant negative impacts that that all has. We hear the term disinformation, mm. misinformation, misleading, of course, good old fake news, propaganda. They're all chucked about pretty generously, aren't they? Within your discipline, how do you distinguish those various terminologies? There's still a, an ongoing debate about this, to, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, we've talked, of course, over the last few years in great detail about fake news and, and use that term. But really, I think since, since at least the, the election of Donald Trump and others, we've seen a real backlash against this term fake news particularly. And that's where a lot of these other terms really have come to the fore. I think most people would, would understand with, under the term fake news is really much more those ideas of misinformation, disinformation. Some people use the term malinformation as well. From my perspective, misinformation is false information, information that is not factually correct, that is being shared still with broadly good intentions. You might share misinformation at the at the start of a, a major crisis event because you simply don't know what's true and, and you might pass on some rumors. Some people who share conspiracy theories even might share them in the genuine belief that what they're sharing is true. So from their perspective, they're not deliberately trying to misinform people or, or disrupt people's information flows, but compare that then to disinformation, which has a much more sinister aspect to it. And that's really the idea that someone is actively trying to influence others with false information, with deliberately false information. Various groups and various agents, there might be some, some state-sponsored agencies there as well, but uh, there are many others who are doing this for commercial or other reasons where you're actively sharing information that you know to be untrue in order to affect 
others uh, around you, other people in society. There are terms like malinformation floating around as well. That, that again, has a more sinister kind of element to it as well. Overall, a lot of these terms are still in, in, in great flux as well. And I think there's a, there's a lot more need to really come to clearer and firmer definitions and use them more rigorously. We've now got people who you know, simply use terms like fake news and by that really just mean everyone who doesn't agree with them. The term fake news in some ways has been weaponized by Donald Trump and by others to simply attack the mainstream media. That's clearly not helpful either. Marco mentioned the idea of silos. A lot of your work argues against the existence of those silos. So people are polarized in their political views. Therefore, on social media, they follow people who agree with them or who reinforce their views. But I think your argument is but the simple fact of doing that doesn't necessarily lead to the creation of filter bubbles or echo chambers. Can you explain why that wouldn't happen? The question here ultimately is what we mean by silo, I guess, in the first place, or filter bubble or echo chamber. They've become very broad and very vague terms in the way that they're being used in general parlance, but also in the academic literature. For me, I think if, if we're talking about echo chambers and filter bubbles as people really sealing themselves off and only engaging with others who are of like mind, who have you know, similar political or ideological or whatever worldviews, there's actually very little evidence that that really happens, uh, so that people really cut themselves off from everyone else and only engage with and only consume information from others who are in their same ideological space. There's plenty of evidence that especially people who are particularly partisan in their political views, you know, hardcore Trump supporters or hardcore Trump haters for that matter as well, tend to consume extraordinary amounts of content from the other side. You know, if you are a, a hardcore reader of far-right content in the US, for instance, it's actually quite likely that you'll also be engaging quite a bit with the New York Times or, you know, MSNBC or whatever else is perhaps more to the, the center and the, the left of US politics, not necessarily because you you enjoy it, but there's essentially a kind of a hate reading going on there. You really need to understand what is it that the enemy thinks in order to continue to attack them. Breitbart itself links very, very frequently to the New York Times. It doesn't do that, of course, in a way to say, well, hey, look, here's, here's some other coverage on this and go read the New York Times. It does it with the framing of saying, well, this is what the liberal media, this is what the, you know, the fake news media or whatever they want to call it uh, is writing about right now. Let us tell you why they're wrong. The premise that filter bubbles, echo chambers are keeping people from consuming a broad diet of information, I think, is, is incorrect and is demonstrably incorrect. The problem is much more that people are ideologically polarized. And so even if they do encounter content from the other side of politics, whatever that is for them, they'll very immediately take a strongly oppositional view to that. And so whenever they encounter content from that other side, they immediately say, aha, yes, but the New York Times would write this or you know, whoever else, CNN, would, would cover it in this way because they're part of the fake news media establishment or whatever the terms might be. That polarization is very evident, but it doesn't mean that information doesn't actually flow between the two camps. So, Axel, could you just take us through the methodology that you use to gather this sort of data that you use to reach those conclusions? How does it actually work? 
There are, in my field broadly, in my own work as well, we've increasingly, and particularly as we've been looking more at, at social media content, of course, there's been a, a, a very strong move towards larger scale computational methods as well in, in doing this sort of analysis. Combined, though, still with some of the more traditional methods in media and communication studies that build on more qualitative, close reading and close analysis of the content. Over the last decade or so, I guess by now, there's been a, a real push of innovation in, in the research methods in this, in this space. Some people have talked about a computational turn, in fact, that really draws much more on large-scale data from social media platforms and elsewhere. On Twitter, to some extent, slightly less extent on Facebook and, and a number of other platforms as well, it's been possible to observe at great scale the public communications that actually take place there. This started, if, if I look just at Twitter, for instance, it started, of course, with people simply tracking particular hashtags and essentially capturing all of the tweets that fit into a particular hashtag. And from that, you get a, a very good indication of how those conversations unfold, whether you end up seeing the formation of multiple camps of, of people who interact with each other much more strongly than with the other side. So you can see evidence of polarization. You can also see, of course, what content they bring into the discussion in the form of links to outside sources, other materials, images, or whatever that they might embed in, into these conversations as well. So you can observe on a really minute-by-minute, second-by-second basis how people respond to world events as they're going on, to new ideas being brought into the conversation. You can see how, how that unfolds over time. Our technical facilities have improved in this space as well. Some of this has, has grown to very, very large scale, ultimately, where we've really been able to, to study public communication via these platforms at a, at a very significant scale and, and in a very comprehensive kind of way. And it's really only the public activity that takes place on these platforms. So there is a, a gray area or, or an, an unexplored, a more, a more unexplored area, of course, of private conversations on these platforms that we can't see for very good reasons, of course. The platforms themselves aren't necessarily entirely representative for the general public because not certainly not everyone's on Twitter, quite a large number of people, but again, not everyone is on Facebook and so on. Having said that, of course, some of these platforms have been very critical, particularly in political communication, in engagement with journalists, in, in sharing the news and so on. So for those areas, we can certainly make some, some very good, or draw some very good conclusions from the, the patterns of activity that, that take place there. Axel, both you and Margot have already referred to Twitter and Facebook and their differing approaches to fact-checking and to regulation. I want to take us all back now to September 2019, when celebrity USA Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, well, she grilled the founder and CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, about the platform's reluctance to regulate political advertising. That was during a congressional committee hearing in the USA Capitol. You announced recently that the official policy of Facebook now allows politicians to pay to spread disinformation um, in 2020 elections and in the future. So I just want to know how far I can push this um, in the next year. Under your policy, you know, using census data as well, could I pay to target predominantly black zip codes and advertise them the incorrect election date? No, Congresswoman, you couldn't. We, we have, even for these policies around the newsworthiness of, of mm -hmm. content that politicians say and the general principle that I believe that but you said you're not going to fact check my we, ads. We have, if, if, uh, if anyone, including a politician, is saying things 
that uh, can cause, that is calling for violence or uh, could risk imminent physical harm or voter or census suppression when we roll out the census suppression policy, um, we will take that content down. So, so you will, there is some threshold where you will fact check political advertisements. Is that what you're telling me? Well, Congresswoman, yes, and for specific things like that, where there's imminent risk of harm. Could I run ads targeting Republicans in primaries saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? Sorry, I, I, can you repeat that? Would I be able to run advertisements on Facebook targeting Republicans in primary saying that they voted for the Green New Deal? I mean, if you're not fact-checking political advertisements, I'm just trying to understand the, the bounds here. What's fair game? I, uh, I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. I think So probably. you don't know if I'll be able to do that? I think probably. Um, do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad, and I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being, uh, from it, from the, for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies, or you will take down lies. I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual. In, Yes, in most cases, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you saying won't to take judge them their down. character for themselves. So you won't take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Uh, Congresswoman, it's, uh, it, it depends on the context that it shows up, organic. AOC and Mark Zuckerberg, and watching the video, Axel, I must say that Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, was under considerable pressure during that cross-examination to the point of having a dry mouth and gulping a bit. Two things jumped out at me. His disavowal of violence, and we put that now in the contemporary context of Trump's shooting and looting. And secondly, he used the term newsworthy when he was talking about their judgments about what was on Facebook. To me, that's a journalism term, an editorial term. Where are we now in the whole platform and publisher controversy, do you think? Ah, that's a very difficult question, I think. I mean, obviously, the platforms have a, a clear problem with scale. That's why they are trying to minimize the amount of fact-checking, of content control that they actually perform. And, and in, in this case, I mean, he talked about uh, really limiting it to a number of, of particular issues. And it looks to me like they're also limit, limiting it uh, particularly to posts that are particularly visible or are coming from particularly high-profile advertisers or general Facebook users. So the problem for them is that even with the best intentions, um, which they may or may not have, it is genuinely very difficult to fact-check or control all the content that gets posted on these platforms. Any problematic content from their perspective tends to be flagged either by automatic um, algorithmic checking of the content that might just be looking for particular keywords in the posts or in the ads that are, that are being posted on the site. Uh, or, of course, they rely on ordinary users actually reporting problematic content to them. Broadly, only then that their moderation teams and so on really swing into action. That's the fundamental challenge that, that the platforms are, are facing. And, you know, that's why they, they historically have been trying to, to do as little as possible, but do it in the most high profile cases as possible in order to also set an example, I guess, to, to show that they are doing things and they are 
acting against content, at least where it becomes really visible. The more, of course, any bad actors on these platforms have seen this in action, the more they've also responded to it. It looks to me like many problematic Facebook ads, but also more problematic content generally uh, might now simply be posted by uh, accounts that are not themselves being flagged by any automated algorithms on the platforms or, or, or don't really reach any particular threshold. And that the content might also be posted particularly into spaces where reporting is a lot less likely to happen. Yeah, just taking a a legacy media perspective, here we are, publishers are responsible for content, they've got to have ethics, they've got to obey the law, they've got to account for defamation and hate speech and all the rest of it. Their whole revenue model has been gobbled up by a platform that has no such liability, therefore they make billions as legacy media collapses, which actually provides the content which could Put a could actually try and and go for facts. It just seems to me that in the end, this is sort of untenable for legacy media. We've seen in coronavirus world online and newspapers just collapsing due to advertising problems, which have compounded this this long term survival issue. Do you see any way that Facebook and Co could actually be forced to subsidise or or pay for the actual content that means that a fact-based, ethics-based news could continue to exist. A legal case in New South Wales last year, the, the Volmer case, which found that media companies were liable for defamatory comments on their Facebook page. So poor old legacy media companies can't even evade liability for comments in Facebook to their their pieces. It, it just seems to me that there's a, an end game here where where journalism dies. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right, absolutely. This is a, a, a deeply problematic moment, particularly, of course, with the heightened problems that the, the, the COVID-19 crisis has, has brought in. There is, and obviously a number of, of legislatures around the world are, are starting to push in this direction. Google and Facebook, particularly as the two biggest companies in this space, are now really gobbling up, as you're saying, most of the advertising revenue. The advertising now happens on those platforms rather than on the platforms of the media outlets whose content is being shared via these services. The way that the money flows are, are now structured, it doesn't match the way that the information flows are being structured, I guess. That's that's probably the way to, to say it. The problem is finding the leverage to change that because, of course, we're also dealing with you know multi-billion dollar transnational corporations. So that, to me, is a, is a really significant problem. And it, it obviously needs transnational solutions, I think, or, or at least collaboration between between lawmakers, policymakers in different nations to try and really deal with this. And how can you deal with it, Axel? Like, I think it was last year, France tried to put a, a tax on, on Google, I think, and Trump said, if you do that, there'll be a trade war. And the devil is in the detail here, of course, as well. I mean, this becomes a little bit like the problem that we're seeing in the music industry as well, where, of course, much of the royalties being collected end up going to, you know, a, a small number, two or three major publishers, major corporations that have gobbled up pretty much all of the other smaller labels by now. I mean, in Australia, obviously, it might might well be the same case because we've only got really two or three major media corporations. That is perhaps beneficial for those companies, but it's not beneficial necessarily for the Australian public or for the diversity of, of information and opinion that the Australian public can access because 
there will be a fight if if Australia ever starts to collect any kind of advertising revenue from from Google and Facebook and tries to distribute this. There will be a fight between those major legacy organizations and all of the smaller publishers, uh, the the Crikeys and New Matildas and New Dailies and Saturday Papers and whoever else has popped up in the meantime about how that should be distributed. How much of it should go to rural and regional media to the extent that they even still exist? How much that, that should go to any kind of new new startups and specialty startups and so on? Does it just go back into Murdoch and Nine's coffers? How much of it goes to the ABC? That's a whole nother fight as well. So these things are also very difficult to solve, and I'm not sure if there's the political will to solve them. I get a bit concerned that in those sorts of discussions, we sort of set the mainstream media up as the good guy and social media as the bad guy. So this notion that social media is stealing the advertising of the mainstream media just isn't true in that social media could easily exist, Facebook could easily exist without linking or having people link to news items from the mainstream media. That is not where all their content comes from. The issue here is that the internet has has, has changed the playing field in a really basic way, which is news and information has gone from being a scarce resource to being an abundant resource. And what Google and Facebook are able to do is they're the way into that abundance. They're kind of a gatekeeper of that abundance. So, of course, advertisers are going to put their advertising with that gateway. They're not going to put it on a back street of some news site. There are serious problems, I'd say, with the size and power of these platforms like Google and Facebook. But it isn't simply a matter that they've stolen advertising from from the mainstream media and that, and that that's the problem. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The point, I guess, is whatever effect Google, Facebook and others have had on advertising flows, money flows for the news industry is really just collateral damage in many ways. Because as you're saying, those platforms are there for many other purposes then talking about news and politics. So any damage that uh, shifts in advertising away from the legacy media platforms to social media platforms uh, have had really are just a side effect of a much broader shift of attention, of activity towards social media in in all areas of, of our social life. We need to not overestimate the centrality that news has to the life of everyday ordinary people. News is only a small part of what people are doing in their lives. It's only a small part of what they're doing in their in their social lives on, on social media platforms as well. Our guest in the transit zone, Professor Axel Bruns from the Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology. Now, here's a voice that's way too familiar. These are just dishonest, terrible people. I'm telling you that. Terrible people. I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. Because they are the fake, fake, disgusting news. There you are, Axel. That's uh, that familiar voice that we're all probably sick to death of hearing day after day. And the fake news thing you referred to earlier. And of course, fake news, Lügenpresse in German and enemy of the people. They both have a long propaganda history, don't they, in totalitarian settings. I think you'll agree that Trump has made Twitter his own broadcast channel. And of course, the the mainstream media in the United States, 
because everything that comes out of the president's mouth is supposedly newsworthy, they've amplified everything that he puts out on Twitter as well. So he's transformed that platform in a way single-handedly, hasn't he? In many ways. I mean, th- there is still plenty, of course, on Twitter that, that has nothing to do with Trump. So we, we shouldn't overrate that in that sense. But for his purposes, certainly, Twitter has become the go-to medium to use. And uh, that's something we've actually seen with a number of populist uh, politicians around the world. It's a, it's a very smart move, in a sense, because they can post directly to this medium in an unfettered, uncontrolled, uncensored way. They can basically put up what otherwise would have been sound graphs, sound bites from, from interviews and, and public statements. They can basically put that up on this platform. They, they don't have to go through any kind of journalistic process. And all the mainstream media, all anyone else can do is basically to choose to report that tweet or not to report that tweet. Um, they can frame it and whatever, but they will usually include the, the tweet itself verbatim. So it's a very smart way, ultimately, for populist politicians like that to directly reach the audience that they're trying to reach without those pesky journalists basically critiquing, analyzing, contextualizing what they're saying. And that's that's been of, of great benefit, obviously, to Trump as well as to a number of other politicians like him around the world. Tim, Margot, Axel, let's take a quick look together at what we all think about what's happening with journalism in the United States following the George Floyd murder and what can only be described as revolts within major newsrooms like the New York Times, the Washington Post and a range of others, big resignations like James Bennett from the New York Times, from the very prestigious and powerful post of opinion editor there. He finally did have to step down after they published the Tom Cotton, who's a a right-wing member of Congress for the Republicans, and he was advocating in that opinion piece using the military to put down the protests uh, in Washington particularly. But there has been a real shift of ground there, hasn't there, Axel? And I'm just wondering what we all think about that and also point out that Twitter itself has been front and centre in that because within the New York Times, for example, uh, journalists in the newsroom have put their hand up and expressed their opinion very strongly about what's happening within their own organisation not looked on kindly within that particular newspaper, uh, reportedly. So, Axel, how do you perceive what's happening in the United States at the moment in that journalism space? I mean, to speak about the New York Times case, first, that's clearly been a long time coming. Um, uh, there's been growing uh, concern and and heated debate about the, the direction of the New York Times opinion pages for some time. There have been a number of other cases where they've published fairly controversial views by um, a really broad range of, uh, of columnists. Uh, and by broad range, I mean a, a, a number of columnists, columnists that cover a very broad range of the US political spectrum. Now, the former editor would say that that's their job to kind of show uh, diverse views and opinions and to uh, perhaps upset people from time to time by publishing something that's, that's on the fringes. But um, uh, clearly... Over the last few years, there's been uh, a lot of people who've, who've formed the opinion that that's gone too far and that it has enabled um, voices to be heard who represent a, a very small minority of, of hyper-partisan, very fringe uh, groups. And, and that in itself is, is more problematic than it's worth. So I think that, that, uh, that uh, revolt, if you like, now, this, this resignation has probably been some time coming. And it will be interesting to see how whoever takes over now for the longer term will try and reshape what happens in the New York Times. 
I guess more more broadly, um, it, it seems to me that in the U.S. and maybe that's the case in some other countries now as well. There's a a shift away from the the journalistic ideal, perhaps hiding behind the journalistic ideal of objectivity uh, uh, here, um, that more news outlets and perhaps more individual journalists as well are willing to take a stand when they see their paper equivocate on particular issues, when they see basically that the, the coverage tends to be sort of a, a both sides coverage rather than clearly pointing out where you know a statement that the president makes is in violation of the constitution or where policy proposals are, are very clearly discriminatory and racist. That's a move back again in some ways from the disinterested and purely objective form of journalism that's been very much in the ascendancy through the second half of the last century and towards something that is more partisan and perhaps more more outspokenly partisan as well. We've seen this in, in other cases. I mean, The Guardian a while ago um, made a very clear statement saying we're no longer going to cover issues around climate change, for instance, with a, with a sort of a, a balanced view. But we are clearly taking the view that now editorially that climate change is a problem that needs to be solved and we're going to give more space to people who provide solutions, possible solutions to it. So, yeah, there's a, there's a more activist role that some journalists and news, news outlets are now taking, I think. Building on what Axel just said there, we now see our leading journalists, not only do we perceive them through their output, their news and journalism output, but we get glimpses of their framing, their own opinions, their biases, if you like, via Twitter and Facebook. So we've got this two-tier perception of them, and they often describe the audience, us, their consumers, in negative terms as well as trolls, or they don't really take kindly a lot of them to dissent or pushback from us or critique from us. So what's your take on that sort of two-tier perception we have of working journalists now? My whole web diary was an experiment in that. I mean, my, my theory was that you will be trusted more as a journalist if you disclose what your opinions are. And I know it's a delicate line, but I, I think if you've got a very clear ethical ethical basis, then I think it's a matter of transparency to say what, what your um, opinions are. But the other thing I, I tried to do on Web Diary, very much influenced by my experience covering Hanson, was to to give space to people with different views, provided they were civil and, and ethical and, and fact-based. I know this is a, a minority view in, in certain circles, but I, I was just I, I was shocked by what, what happened at the New York Times. I mean, this is a, a United States senator who um, wrote a, a a column which said that the the troops the Trump should call in the troops to states to stop looting and riots, and the response was this makes our minority staff unsafe. I mean, which is you know clearly a pretense. They they did that because they could go on Twitter with it because they could say it was a workplace safety issue, and I, I thought it was um, just outright attempt at at censorship, and that. I believe that Tom Cotton's views are just appalling, and it's important that that liberal, you know, um, liberals in the U.S. sense um, know what what the other side is saying. And um, I, I just, to me, I, I actually started to lose confidence in the credibility of of the New York Times over that. I thought, my God, this is this is this is um, a, a political correctness gone completely crazy. You know, 
publish as many pieces you, as you like saying that that view by Cotton is crap. But at that time, when he published that, when they published that Cotton piece, the polling was showing that a majority of Americans believed that it was it was okay to send in the troops. Like you know, it's not as though this is fringe. I mean, to 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 have a, a, a U.S. senator who wants to be president to be able to put those views in the New York Times and put them up for the debate is part of New York Times democratic responsibility, in my view. I was just, I was shocked, shocked about about it. And um, I, I, as I said, I, I question, I'm starting to question the um, what what the New York Times is about after that. It's illiberal, is what I'm saying. It really isn't. I I, I couldn't disagree more. I think. Let me preface this by saying Margot is an absolute pioneer of um, a sort of bottom-up type of journalism that I totally applaud and was actually part of in the early days with Margot when she started Web Diary. But I, I, I just think that this notion that the role of the media is to publish all views in the way that they did with that Tom Cotton piece is just misguided in this day and age. It just makes the media completely vulnerable to people who are willing to sit there and lie to your face or to say anything. There were no lies. There were no lies, Tim. The whole thing about not going through our process and fact-checking, it was a lie. It was a lie. It was an ex post facto lie. And now what we've got is the acting um, opinion editor at the New York Times, Catherine, I think her name is, has put out a memo saying, if anyone has any slightest discomfort with any photo, phrase, article, headline, please come to me immediately. I mean, that's just out of this world, out of this world. Well, I, d- I disagree with that. There, it was a disingenuous and dishonest piece. It wasn't read by the um, the editor who eventually lost his job over it, which is not good journalism. It's read However, by the deputy editor, Margo, the deputy op-ed editor. Oh, well, come on. How about, you, how about you tell the truth here? Well, okay, but the deputy op-ed editor didn't lose their job. The, the guy who the deputy The deputy op-ed editor did lose his job. His name's Jim Dow and he was removed from his post oh, and sent okay, back to the newsroom. Okay, my, my mistake. The point is... It is not the role of the media just to platform that sort of view. They're quite welcome to publish that sort of view, but do it in an interrogative sort of way, not just give it a platform. It was the same with Four Corners platforming Steve Bannon and giving him the softest of soft interviews and justifying it on the grounds that, well, we all have to hear what the likes of Bannon say. This is complete nonsense. They could have easily given us Bannon's view, but in a much more, um, and and interrogated it in a much more thorough way than that Four Corners story did. A lot of the problem is that newsrooms themselves are white upper middle class enclaves, and the sooner that they get more diverse voices in there, the better, and that what is happening now is an attempt to do that. And I think it's incredibly welcome that these voices are being heard. Sure, we might overreact on occasion until we get it right, but the notion that it just defaults back to this notion that we hear everything in this day and age where news is 
now a fire hose rather than a scarce resource is is just a nonsense way of looking at journalism. This is a mainstream US senator who wants to be president and to me an upper-middle-class white liberal enclave in New York Times needs to read his rationalisation for sending in the troops so that they know what uh, the mood of that particular party is. I'm not saying run any bit of crap, but anyway, look, obviously we're going to disagree (laughs) on this. Can I just give a quick historical overview of this too? Going back in my own personal career, in the mid-80s, I started National Talkback in Australia by a Radio National, and before that, quite a lot of talkback, and after that, a lot of talkback on ABC local radio. We didn't doubt for a moment our editorial duty to work very hard to create a an output via scaffolding discussion coming in from talkback. Certainly on National Talkback, we did a lot of production work as the calls came in, filtering, overtly filtering and asking people what they were going to say, etc. We had no doubt at that time with Radio Talkback, which I see as a almost a harbinger of social media in a way, pre-digital, that that was our job to do that. So that sort of just plays into some of the discussion we've been having today, Tim and Margot and Axel, about just how, just how things are going to evolve with social media. And I'm interested, Tim, that you've used the term in your recent book, fusion media. Exactly. The two aren't separate anymore, are they? No, it, and they all happen, the, all of this happens in sort of a shared space. So, so I find, you know, just this constant dividing between new and old media doesn't really work, and that's why I use the term fusion media, because they both operate together. But I think what you've said there is, is, is the key point, really, that journalism always makes decisions about what it publishes. It doesn't just publish anything. That is the nature of the profession. So there's always going to be an argument where that line is drawn. And Mark and I always have different ideas. In terms the New of the York Times has published the New York Times has published op-eds by Erdogan and Putin. I mean, look, my my point is, I'm not saying you know, obviously they've got to be fact-based and not you know wild conspiracy theories or whatever. But it is important that liberal elites know the arguments of of people who are on the other side. The other side is, is some sort of fascism or something. It's not just some. Of course we know the other side of that. We don't need the New York Times publishing Putin and Erdogan for us to know that. It, the, the notion that this is the only way the liberal elite are going to understand this stuff is just nonsense. Now, Axel, when we've had a particularly robust discussion here in the transit zone, we'd like to just part company in good terms, telling each <laughs> other what we've been reading and listening to and what we've been enjoying. So... You first. What have you been reading, listening to, music, whatever, television? What's been tickling your fancy, Axel? Well, uh, for, for work, I've been reading a lot of conspiracy theories around 5G and, and, and COVID-19, so that's probably not what you're asking. But <laughs> in terms of my listening, I've got a fairly eclectic sort of range of listening that I do, but um, there's a, a, a bunch of really excellent instrumental bands from Northern Europe that I've been I've been paying particular attention to. There's a a wonderful band from from Denmark called Papier, uh, who are doing this this very energetic, uh, but also very gentle, if that makes sense, uh, uh, rock music, and and that's something I've I've been particularly getting into in, in recent times. Excellent, thank you, Margot. Well, I'm sort of getting to the stage of um, 
you know, having to have a uh, an exit date to, to leave mum's house and, you know, go wherever. So I'm just sort of um, uh, listening to Eckhart Tolle in his inimitable way um, audio, his book, The Power of Now, which is all about um, accepting what is and embracing uncertainty. And Tim? I don't think I've mentioned this before, but um, I've watched it twice now, a Netflix show called Giri Haji, which is a... Um, a UK Japanese co-production and it's absolutely one of the best things I've seen on television in a long time. Um, Giri Haji it's called. I've been intrigued for some time about comedy and its emergence and evolution with Trump. Of course the late night shows are like a different planet but I've been particularly entertained lately with some online comedians. Michael Spicer who's a UK guy who does that really sharp satire in the room next door. The conceit is that he's in the ear of either Boris Johnson or Donald Trump or Dominic Cummings and telling them what to do as they try and defend themselves. It's very funny. Also, Sarah Cooper, who does lip sync stuff. She just uses the words and the voice of Donald Trump and does the subtext through her own acting. And I'm very amused by the deaf, very sharp, high camp cabaret song parodies of Randy Rainbow, who's just very, very clever guy. He does it all in his room with a green screen and a lot of editing and clever software. Very high quality stuff. And it's all pretty much anti-Trump and anti-Kant, I suppose. Randy Rainbow. Axel, thanks so much for being with us today in the Transit Zone. It's been terrific. Thank you. Our guest today in the Transit Zone, Professor Axel Bruns, a senior media researcher in the Digital Media Research Centre at the Queensland University of Technology. Axel is a prolific publisher, so if you'd like to dig further into some of the things he just gave a brief indication of, get a Googling. Margot, Tim, thank you very much. Catch you next week here in The Zone. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Peter. Bye. Our guest next time is one of Australia's most respected and original chefs, Michael Ryan. Michael is the owner of multi-award-winning restaurant Provence in Beechworth, Victoria. He was the 2013 Chef of the Year. We'll discuss how coronavirus has affected his industry as we come out of lockdown. Michael Ryan next in the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. For the Transit Zone team, Tim Dunlop and Margot Kingston. Thanks for being with us. And we'll catch you next time here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the Transit Transit Zone. Zone.